0: So, we're starting our series in Galatians, face to face with the gospel. Paul wrote this epistle, this letter to the church that he originally planted in Galatia. He writes it out of frustration, he writes it out of disappointment. But as he writes it, he paints such a clear, wonderful, expressive picture of the gospel. As he writes this letter, Paul helps us to define the gospel and to see how it relates to us today. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this series. I've been looking forward to doing it for a while, and as this book is just so uplifting, it's, it's so encouraging. It gives such a clear outline of just how amazing the gospel is and what it means for each of us. So we're starting in the beginning. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. We read the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. pray this in your name. Amen. So there's there's a lot going on in the opening paragraphs of this letter. What stands out the most initially is Paul's tone. He's not happy. He gives his introduction, which is pretty solid, by the way, and we're going to take a look at that uh, a little bit later here. But once he's done introducing himself, he uses the phrase, he says, I'm astonished. I am astonished. And if you read any of the other epistles you read like Ephesians, uh, Corinthians, you know, you read, read any of the other epistles, you'll see that Paul introduces himself much the same way. And then he moves into a, I'm so thankful for you section of, of the epistle before he starts getting into the meat of what uh, he's been led to talk to them about, what he's, what he's a re- really writing them about. But in this case, we get a straight up, I am astonished. Scholars tell us that this is a strong rebuke they tell us that this is a slap in the face to the Galatians. You see, philosophers of the time would use this kind of language against somebody that they were debating because it showed disbelief at the ridiculousness of the other person's point of view immediately discrediting it. Like if I were to say, I am astonished that you put pineapple on pizza. Pineapple doesn't belong on pizza, right? It's just, it just doesn't go there. Or... Or, I'm astonished that you think that Iron Man is a superhero. He has no powers. He's just a smart man with a bunch of money. This is how you speak to an opponent, right? This is, this is how you speak to somebody that you're coming against. Somebody you're trying to discredit. Somebody you're trying to debase. Yet, this is how Paul opens his letter to the Galatians. A church and people that he loves. He loves that he cares deeply about. So what is going on in Galatia that causes Paul to use such harsh language? Galatia had a problem. There was a social and ultimately racial divide taking place in the church there. You see, the initial Christians were Jews in Jerusalem, and they adopted Christianity, and as they adopted Christianity, there were elements of the traditional Mosaic law that they continued to follow. And as Christianity and spread, uh, increasing numbers of Gentiles, that is, the not Jewish, so so most of us, you know, we we began to receive Christ. And the issue that was rising in Galatia was that the group of teachers was insisting that the Gentile Christians follow the traditional customs that the Jewish Christians did. The customs in particular in particular in this case, were circumcision and, and dietary laws. Now, there isn't anything sinful about circumcision in this context. There, there isn't anything sinful about following dietary laws. So, not eating pork, or just not eating certain things that you know, you're, you're not supposed to eat. And, and they get these laws, these customs, from back in, in uh, the Mosaic laws. We get that in Leviticus. And they've just been continuing to follow them. So, as they became Christians, they just held on to these things. They just held on to the importance for them of, of circumcision. They held on to the importance of, of not eating pork and, and making sure that you know, they're, they're, doing, they're, they're eating properly. They're eating according to the, the way that they were supposed to be eating in, in Leviticus. There's nothing wrong with those particular traditions. They become an issue when the teachers were saying that you couldn't be a Christian without following those laws or those traditions. They were adding extras into the gospel that Paul had given to them, that Paul had preached to them. So then I guess part of the question could be, well, how do we know that Paul's right and that they're wrong? I mean, they're, they're getting it from the Bible, right? They're getting it from their Old Testament text. They're getting it from, from word that, that God has given to them. So how do we know that, that they're the ones that are wrong and that, that Paul's the one that's right? So let's, let's go back up a little bit. Let's take a look into exactly how Paul introduces himself in this passage. Paul, an apostle, he writes, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, apostle in the, in the Greek means sent, the sent one. And when we talk about apostles from the Bible, we're talking about someone who is sent with immediate authority from God. Paul's phrase, not from men nor through man," derives from the uniqueness of, of the first apostles. I mean, today it is still the Holy Spirit who calls a person into ministry, and that person's authority ultimately comes from Jesus' word in the Bible, but in the case of pastors and missionaries and elders and, and those in lay leadership, we've been appointed by man. It is an elder board or a joint board that calls a pastor. It's a council that sends missionaries. It's a church leadership that calls and installs lay people into ministry positions. While we lean on the Spirit for guidance, direction, and wisdom, it is man who appoints in those situations, in our our situations today. But that was not the case with the first apostles. And Paul is making this very clear. He wants the Galatians to remember where his authority comes from. He was not sent by man. He was not appointed by man. He was commissioned and taught directly by the risen Jesus himself as we read in Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 19. This means that his divine teaching is the standard. It's the standard for judging what is God's teaching and direction and what is contrary to God's teaching and direction. Even an apostle cannot alter, reverse, or add To the message of Christ. What he says is not the result of his study or his research, reflection, or wisdom. It is God given and both unchanging and unchangeable. So Paul has laid forth his credentials. He said, I realize that you're stuck on what was going on back there, but we're moving forward, guys. And this is the gospel. This is the truth. What I have delivered to you is reality. People are coming in and they're distorting it. They're messing it up. The gospel that Paul preached to them was a Christ alone gospel. That Christ is all we need. That nothing needs to be or can be added by man to improve on what Christ has done. That belief in Jesus is enough. And these teachers were saying that belief wasn't enough. They were saying that something needed to be done on the part of the individual in order to truly be a Christian. Christ, in this context, is no longer good enough. It's a Christ plus something else gospel, which is what Paul is referring to in verse 6 when he says that they are turning to a different gospel. When we try to add something to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. If it is dependent on works of man, then it is no longer the gospel. It's just something else. And this is what was causing the divide in Galatia. It wasn't the traditions themselves. It wasn't the dietary laws. It wasn't the circumcision. It was the twisting of the gospel. It was applying the traditions in inappropriate ways, cheapening and ultimately spitting On Christ's work on the cross. Telling God that what he did wasn't enough. You know, we need to do something as well. That we can somehow add to perfection. And what's more, that we need to. Martin Luther put it this way in his commentary on Galatians. He writes, There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence in your own work. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence in your own work. And so we are left with two truths. The first... That we are too sinful to contribute to our own salvation. We need a complete rescue. And the second, that we are saved by belief in Jesus' work, plus nothing else. His work alone. A gospel that deviates from these two truths is not the gospel. And so that's why Paul comes out the gate so strong. For as we read in verse 6, to turn to this other gospel is to desert And lose Christ, the whole reason for our hope. This is a fight he can't afford to lose. Everything is at stake in this debate. So how does this relate to us? How do we see this today? How do we see this in our lives today, in the world today? You know, adding... Traditional Mosaic laws is a requirement to the gospel. It may not seem as prevalent or maybe as relevant today, but twisting the gospel is still a very current issue. It just tends to take different forms in our present time. So, what does it look like? How do we recognize it? There are there are some uh, situations that they, they manifest themselves a little more obviously than others. You know, the health and wealth teachings of of guys like Joel Osteen is extremely dangerous. But it's easy to spot. You can can tell where it's coming from. You can see it. Anytime a teacher is telling you that you must do for God so that God can work in your life, you know, alarm bells should be going off at that point in time. It, It should be going crazy at that point in time. It's warnings. It's signs. Because that's not God. That's man trying to manipulate God. That's man inserting himself into an equation where he doesn't belong. It's a false gospel. And then there are highly legalistic branches of religion, super, super conservative branches of Christianity, where you are told how to dress, how to act, how you should live, so you might be pleasing to God and free from the stain of corruption that is current society. Now, this is on the opposite spectrum of health and wealth crowd, but it falls into the same trap. Their focus is more on what we must do for God, and not on what He has done for us. Now, those examples are pretty clear. It's it's not hard to see the twisting going on. One of the areas that's not as clear not as easy to detect, and one that we encounter more often is is much more easy to be trapped by, and that is when we misunderstand works, when we misunderstand the reasons that we do things for God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's, it's worth bringing up again. The Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, they continually instruct us as Christians to live moral lives To do good works. That good works are pleasing to God. Ethics and morality are very important in our Christian lives and our daily walk. But they are not salvific, meaning that our salvation is not dependent on our works. Just as they didn't when Paul wrote this apostle to the Galatians, our works still don't play any role. In the gospel, yeah. good works aren't bad. In fact, they're very good, as long as we understand their purpose. Their purpose. Do we? Do we have any golfers? We got any guy? Anybody that likes to golf? I'm am a terrible golfer. I'm I'm really really bad. So maybe I shouldn't even be like venturing into like using this analogy. But I've I've golfed a little bit enough to know that there's a difference in the clubs that you use, right? So when you when you go up to tee off. You got your, like, big, like, one wood or, or three wood or whatever, and it's just a, it's a big thing. You got a lot of space. It's, I, I like those personally because there's a lot more like, surface area for me to connect with the ball. Typically, I shank it one way or the other. But when you've got a, when you've got a club, it serves a purpose. It has an intent. There's a variety of different clubs because they, they serve different points of the field. You use them in different, like, traps, different areas of the, of the fairway. If you if you step up to drive the ball off the tee with a putter it's not going to work. It's not going to accomplish the purpose that the putter is there for. And you're going to be neglecting the, the purpose that the wood is there for. It's just going to be sitting in your bag doing nothing. And instead you're using a tool for the wrong job. You're trying to drive a ball down a fairway with with something that's meant to be accurate and precise not the blunt object that is the driver. Our works are a response to God. Our works grow out of a life lived in the gospel. They are very important, and the Bible is clear on that as well. Our works are an indicator of our spiritual health. Good works mean healthy, and, and a lack of good works mean spiritually sick. But good works are not part of the gospel. They do not save us. Trying to use good works to save us is like trying to drive a a tennis ball with a putter. It just doesn't work. It can't happen. It's not going to function. You know, what a relief. What a blessing to know that it is Christ's work and not our own. It is Christ doing the work. And not us. Our salvation is not reliant on the works that we do. It's reliant on the work that Christ has done. The gospel is for all of us. In this letter to the Galatians, Paul goes over the gospel in great detail. We're going to see that as we, as we progress through these next, I think it's like 12, whoa, I think it's like 12 weeks, <laughs> he talks about what it is, how it works. And something that is often overlooked is that he's writing this letter all about the gospel to professing Christians. He's writing this to a church, a letter all about the gospel, laying it out, making it clear. He's writing it to professing Christians. Often when we think of the gospel, we see it as an outreach tool, right? It's something seen largely for non-Christians. We kind of see it as a set of basic ABC teachings that are the way in which someone enters the kingdom of God. We often figure that once we're converted, we don't need to hear or study or understand the gospel. We're supposed to be moving on to something more advanced, right? We're supposed to move on to more advanced material. But in this short letter, Paul outlines that we don't move on to something after the gospel, we just move deeper into the gospel. The gospel is not only the way to enter the kingdom. It is the way to live in the kingdom. It is the way that Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. The gospel is for all of us, old Christians, new Christians. It is the way that we live in the kingdom of God. As we leave today, as you leave here today, know that God has made a way for you through the gospel. That not only are you not expected to do anything to fulfill the gospel, you are unable to do anything to fulfill it. For Christ, in his greatness, and by his love, has done it all for us. Amen. Let's uh, stand as we sing our our closing song together.